Chapter 10. The Torah is tantamount to slavery. To keep or not to keep, that is the question. For as long as I can remember, even as far back as when I was a preteen, every time the subject of obeying the law came up, everyone got so nervous they could thread a sewing machine while it was running. I am, of course, talking about biblical law and specifically the law of Moses. Fast forward 35 years. I am almost 50. And now, when the subject of keeping the law comes up, absolutely nothing has changed. My Christian friends and family still get nervous and still get defensive when someone touches on the taboo topic of Torah. Of course, no one bats an eyelash when the subject turns to traffic laws, civil laws, criminal laws, medical laws, or tax laws. Why is that? Why are we so at peace with the vast majority of our governmental laws, yet get fairly nauseous when it comes to God's laws? I wonder if it has something to do with the Christian belief that those who keep the law are trying to save themselves through works rather than faith in Jesus. If keeping the law of Moses is a salvation issue, meaning that one attempts to keep the law as a means to attain salvation— then no wonder Christians get angry, scared, frustrated, impatient, and look at the one who would keep the law of Moses as an apostate. My question is, and has been for a number of years, is keeping the law a salvation issue? Verses like, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. Or, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Galatians 3 and verse 10. I am currently typing out the words of this chapter in real time. As I was furiously pounding away on my keyboard, I was still thinking about the Galatians verse above. I opened up the Blue Letter Bible app on my not-so-smart phone to Galatians 3 and verse 10 because three words caught my attention from the verse. Rely, abide, and of. My purpose for writing this part of this chapter is that you and I both might have a chronicle of the steps I took to get where I arrived. I looked up the word rely, as in all who rely on works of the law. This word is hosos in Greek and means as great as, as far as, as long as, as much as, as many as, etc. It was the Greek language's way of having a word stand in for a noun. In English, they are called correlative or relative pronouns. Words like whoever, anyone who, whichever, etc. The KJV, which is a much older translation than the ESV, rendered this verse in the following way. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. That made about as much sense to me as it did to you just now. That's why you're not allowed to read the KJV unless you're at least a hundred years old. I kid. The KJV rendered the Greek word hosos correctly, as many as, but left the verse sounding wooden and clunky. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. K 
KJV slipped a couple of words in there for fluidity and then left it alone and moved on. The ESV, however, came along a while later and tried to clean it up for us with this translation. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So my question became, in real time, mind you, how did they get the word rely, which is clearly a verb, from a correlative pronoun, a word or words that stand in for a noun? Hmm. Interesting, thought I. Next, I looked up the Greek word for abide. What I found is the word emeno. It is a compound word. Two separate words are combined to make a different word. En means in or inside, and meno means to remain. Abide, stay, hold, continue, remain, stay, stay inside of, and not depart. Back to the KJV. I continually switch back and forth because if one version is vastly different from another version, I want to know how the evolution played out that led from one rendition to the other. I couldn't seem to get past the weird-sounding as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. Now I zeroed in on the word of, which is ek in Greek. The word ek in Galatians 3 and verse 10 is universally defined both biblically and in texts outside of the Bible as out of, from, away from, outside of, departing from an enclosed place, or departing from the interior of. Now that made sense to yours truly. Stay with me because we're about to hit pay dirt. Check me on this, and what I mean is, see if what you're about to read fits the context of Paul's thoughts in Galatians 3 better than how the KJV left it, and more appropriately than the ESV, and most other modern translations have it. What Paul seems to be getting at here is that anyone or all who go outside of the commandments are under a curse. What is my evidence? My evidence is not only the Greek language, which incontrovertibly allows for a much different translation than what we currently have, but my evidence is the same as Paul's evidence, the Torah. The verse that Paul cited in Galatians 3.10 is, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by the words of this law by doing them. I went to the Blue Letter Bible search box, typed in the keywords cursed, law, do, and them, and one passage from the Torah appeared, Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26 to be exact. This verse states the following, Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. When I clicked on the original language, the word confirm from Deuteronomy showed the word kum in Hebrew. I didn't really care about the Hebrew at this moment. I needed the Greek. A simple scroll down the page and my app asked me if I wanted to see the Septuagint's Greek of this same passage. I said, why, yes, I would. Much obliged, little app. And there it was. The word emene. It stood out like lipstick on a pig. It's the same word that Paul used in Galatians 3, 
because Paul was quoting from his translation of the Holy Scriptures, the Septuagint. Now I was getting somewhere. The words abide from Galatians and confirm from Deuteronomy are the same word in Greek. Paul just quoted a Torah passage that stated very clearly that anyone who does not abide by, confirm, or remain inside of the words of the law by doing the words of the law is under a curse. But remember where this long and winding road began. The ESV and most other modern translations say, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. My heart sank. Our inerrant New Testaments, our inspired translations, have Paul saying something that is 180 degrees opposite of what Paul actually wrote. The smoking gun was still smoking. In the MDV, the Mark Dean version of Galatians 3 and verse 10, there is far greater continuity with not only the verse cited from Deuteronomy 27 and 26 that directly follows Paul's words, but fits the larger context of chapter 3 as well. Paul even said that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. You know, the curse that comes from going outside of the works of the law by not doing them? What was the curse? Death. For all who go outside of the works of the law are under a curse, and that curse is death. For it is written, Cursed be, that is, death come to Everyone who does not abide by, remain in, continue in, and confirm all things written in the book of the law, and do them. My investigative research revealed Paul to be saying, For all who are outside of the works of the law are under a curse or under death. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not remain inside of all of the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Galatians 3 and verse 10. Paul made the same distinction that I am going to make now. Justification cannot be obtained by keeping the law. Only life can be obtained by keeping the law. Those who go outside of the law will be cursed by death. So, it sounds like the only way to have life and never come under the curse of death, is to keep the law perfectly. But I can never do that. A wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Sound familiar? That's Romans chapter 7 and verse 24. There is only one who kept the law perfectly so as to never be cursed under death. Yet, someone went too far. Somebody got greedy. Someone overstepped his legal boundaries and went just a little too far. That someone was the devil who held the keys of death in Hades and unleashed death upon the only one over whom he had absolutely no legal right to do so. Jesus, the sinless one. Death came to the one hanged on a tree. This is how God was able to go to the place of the dead 
and demand legally the deed to the kingdom of the earth that Adam and Eve signed, sealed, and delivered to the devil when they violated God's will, his law, his Torah, his boundaries. Could it be that Christianity has shunned the law for an age because we thought Paul was saying that those who keep the law are under a curse, when in reality, he was saying quite the opposite? In Galatians 3 and verse 11, Paul was talking about someone trying to attain salvation, a.k.a. justification through keeping the law. And he said, you can't. No one can. But Christianity threw the baby out with the bathwater. We cannot be saved by keeping the law, but we can have a wonderful life doing the legislated will of the author of the law. Think traffic law, tax law, civil law, natural law. When we go against these laws, our life is headed for great difficulty. When we respect the laws of traffic, tax, medicine, and nature, our lives tend to be fuller, better, and freer. Maybe God's law is reflected in man's law. Maybe God's law isn't meant to save us, but rather to bless us with goodness, fullness, and freedom. Elvis has left the building. The law of Moses has gone AWOL in Christianity for just over a millennium and a half. AWOL, A-W-O-L, stands for absent without leave. Despite the fact that Jesus upheld the law, taught how to keep the law correctly, and commanded all disciples for all time to keep the law as he instructed, the law of Moses is all but completely absent in modern Western Christianity. Peter declared in his second letter, third chapter and verse 16, that the ignorant and unstable twist Paul's counsel to their own destruction. By the 4th century A.D., the church fathers were still making Peter's declaration come true. We have been living out Peter's predictive claim ever since. He said, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter is not hurling insults at his foes. Peter is stating a fact. Ignorance leads to instability. Ignorance is defined as a lack of wisdom or knowledge. Instability means to not stand, make, or be firm. Christianity is ignorant of the law of Moses. I, just like Peter, am not hurling insults, but stating a fact. We are ignorant in the law of Moses because we have inherited a biased and false understanding of the law of Moses, and that ignorance has led to our instability in the law of Moses. Humans intuitively fear and reject what we do not firmly grasp. 
I can only speak from my own experience with discussions I've had regarding the law. I have spoken to hundreds of individuals over the years and have come to understand that whether in Colorado, California, Michigan, or Texas, Spain, Mexico, Brazil, or Chile, whenever the subject is presented, it evokes primarily two responses, dismissal and defensiveness. The law of Moses, or the Torah, is either dismissed as ancient history and shrugged off as irrelevant, or the elimination of the law is aggressively defended with much fear and warning aimed at those who would attempt to keep it. I believe that both responses are totally justified given the history of what Christianity has inherited with respect to the law. Our Christian predecessors did not have a lot of positive things to say about the law, and neither do our contemporaries. But why? Why does the thought of keeping God's law bring so much dread, vitriol, exhaustion, and angst? I believe that the most dominant reason for not keeping God's Torah lies in the implication that to keep the Torah would imply that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient. However, nothing could be further from the truth. Yo, Adrian! Adrian! Christianity is stuck in fight-or-flight mode regarding law-keeping. This is so for several reasons. Sadly, the reasons themselves are the lies, but Christianity as a whole is still largely unaware of it. If we have been taught our entire lives that Jesus fulfilled the law so that the rest of humanity didn't have to, and some armchair Bible teacher comes along and starts telling people that we need to revisit the idea of keeping the law, this causes a cascade effect in the minds of many Christians. Jesus fulfilled the law. Fulfillment of the law triggers the erroneous idea of completion of the law. But as we have already stated, laws are not completed. Laws are obeyed as a perpetual act. Completion of the law triggers the mistaken idea of freedom from the law and the notion that the law enslaves. Freedom from enslavement triggers a cultural and profoundly seated belief that we must protect our freedoms at any cost, especially freedom from slavery. Therefore, if someone claims that we might need to go back and revisit the law, that someone must be trying to put us back into slavery to a system from which we were already liberated by God himself in human form, Jesus Christ. This heretic, therefore, is saying that Jesus' sacrifice was insufficient to save us from our sins, and as a result, we need to keep the law in order to be saved. If any of that were true, then Christianity should fight or take flight. We should all seek to prevent error from edging its way into our midst. However, we have already dealt with Jesus' fulfillment of the law and what that actually means. Christianity 
has been and still is fighting something. But we haven't been preventing error or subterfuge from slipping in the back door. We have been defending a towering lie that our fathers have inherited. As chapters 5 and 7 of this book explain, Jesus came to fill the law up again. He came to fill it full because those who held sway over the least of these had emptied God's perfect law of its glory, power, and life-giving quality. Jesus himself declares loudly for all to hear that he did not come to eliminate the law. The dinner bell rings. A dog that has been abused by a previous owner will lower his head, ears, and cower before a different owner who has never raised a hand against him for months and even years after the initial abuse. Why? Because learned behavior is hard to get rid of. You can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take Texas out of the girl. We, as Christians, have learned a behavior. What we have learned is that any parlance about the Torah and law-keeping is strengverboten, strictly forbidden. This fight-or-flight reaction the defensiveness and nervousness of speaking about the law will not change until we are able to correct the error that has infiltrated our camp concerning what the law is and what it means to keep it. The long arm of the law. We are surrounded by laws that regulate our daily lives, most of which we are unaware of because they, for the most part, do what they were intended to do. They keep things in society running smoothly. It is only when I or someone else disrupts the otherwise civil behavior that we are accustomed to that we become acutely aware of the law and how it may have been broken. Laws exist to protect the members of a particular population from unjust or harmful action against them. People may not like particular laws that are placed over them by the authorities, but most citizens do not break laws simply because they don't like them. I don't know anyone who likes paying taxes, but most folks pay them because it's the law. Nobody likes high prices at the supermarket, yet most people pay for their groceries rather than steal them because it's the law. When someone is rude at the gym or in a restaurant, the average law-abiding citizen does not retaliate with bodily injury because, once again, it is against the law to intentionally harm another without just cause. And last time I checked, rudeness was not a legitimate reason for giving someone a black eye. We obey laws even when we don't like the laws Because all laws bear consequences, whether positive or negative. Imagine a world with no laws. The high schooler thinks, all right, man, that would be awesome. Up until his new truck is stolen by his math teacher and used to run over his dog, all because the math teacher felt like it. Laws are necessary 
for all life. All laws have lawgivers. Let's say you and your friend Sam are getting ready to dive headfirst into an hour-long, grueling duel of the classic word game Scrabble. You draw your tiles, set them on your little stand in front of you, when all of a sudden, the seven letters in front of you spell out Stab Sam. Would you get up from the table, fetch a knife, and stab your friend Sam repeatedly with it? No, that's ridiculous. But why not? The answer lies in the fact that we intuitively know that commands have commanders, rules have rule makers, and laws have lawgivers. Laws, rules, and commands are a communication between two or more people. Laws are the expression of the legislator. You wouldn't obey the command that your Scrabble letters display because you know there is no mind behind the imperative to stab Sam. It's a random occurrence. It's accidental. It simply happened by chance. It's no different with laws out in society. If laws came about by chance, there would be absolutely no reason to obey them. But the interesting question is, why not? Why would we not obey commands, rules, or laws if they came about by chance? In short, we wouldn't obey them because there is no mind behind them. And if there is no mind behind them, there is no intended consequence for not obeying them. Enforcement of laws, rules, and commands is crucial for adherence to or obedience of all laws. But what would happen if it became widely known that a particular law in your neck of the woods was never enforced? What would keep someone from disobeying a law that was never enforced? The answer is in the question. What would keep someone from disobeying a law? Nothing would keep someone from disobeying a law that was never enforced. The key word being keep. What keeps us from breaking laws is precisely those who would enforce consequences concerning those who break laws. The enforcers of law keep the keepers keeping the law. We keep laws because enforcement is keeping us accountable. Keeping laws is something so normal, so natural, that most of us never think twice about it. Laws are a part of our daily lives, so woven into the fabric of our existence that they fade into the background. Most laws are invisible to our perception. The laws of nature, for example, are consistent, and their relatively unchanging status renders them invisible as invisible as the nose on your face that is nearly always in your line of sight, yet you rarely ever see it. Just look straight ahead and fix your gaze on a point in front of you. Now, shake your head slowly from side to side, and voila! There's the nose that is always there, but you filter it out due to its constant presence. Thus far, in this book, we've spoken quite extensively about the Torah or the Law of Moses and how Jesus never did away with it. He never added to it. He never diminished from it. He did not and could not change it. 
He addressed no subject more than the law of Moses. But because our fathers have inherited lies, we not only do not look into the law of Moses for direction, counsel, and a revelation of who God is, but we cast a wary eye on anyone who would suggest that there be a dialogue open for discussing it. Caught red-handed. How does a child view the boundaries and consequences her parents place around her? If it is a very young child, she most likely sees them as mean, restrictive, limiting, and unfair. As she grows into her teen years, she still dislikes the boundaries and consequences because she sees them as oppressive, intrusive, frustrating, useless, and possibly lazy. But when that young lady grows into maturity, she realizes that the boundaries and consequences for going beyond them that her parents imposed upon her were for her good, her teaching, her admonishing, shaping, guiding, instructing, and correcting. She comes to realize, albeit very slowly over the years, that her parents limited her because they love her more than words can express. If they didn't love her, they never would have done a thing to change her. Could it be that just like that little girl who saw her parents' laws as mean, unloving, hurtful, and contradictory, that we too have never learned the true reason that God's laws exist, what they accomplish, and what they reveal about the lawgiver? Could it also be that once we grow into the maturity of who God is calling us to be, that we might also look at those laws not as something punitive and probationary, but as what they really are, the expression of God's will meant to give us freedom, joy, direction, and understanding, that we might live the best possible lives this side of judgment. God's laws are always meant to do for us what that girl's parents did for her. They are meant to show us the best possible life we can live. And when we go beyond what is shown us in God's will, discipline is in order. How is that so different from how we were raised or how we raise our kids? Do you have rules for your children? Are you a cruel and unloving parent if you do? Riddle me this, Batman. In John 14 and verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. The interpretation and application of that statement have caused a great many acrobatics to be performed in Christianity. Aside from the fact that Jesus' last and arguably most important command is the one found in Matthew 28 and verse 20, teach them, that is, the perpetual line of disciples down through history that the eleven are instructed to make of the Gentiles, to obey everything that I have already commanded you to obey. Emphasis mine. Remember, Jesus never commanded anyone ever 
to obey anything other than the law of Moses as Jesus interpreted it in the entirety of all four Gospels and the book of the Revelation. No believer disputes Jesus as the human expression of God on earth. If Jesus is God in the flesh, then please think carefully about your response to the next question. When he said, If you love me, keep my commandments. To which commandments was he referring? His own commandments or God the Father's? If Jesus had his own set of commandments, and those commandments are different from God's commandments recorded in the Old Testament, then how are we to reconcile verses like John 12, verse 49? For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. That verse just declared that every commandment that Jesus spoke was God's commandment first. Or John 5 and verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. This verse just admitted that Jesus does only that which the Father is doing. Or what about John 8 and verse 28? So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. John 14.10 Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Whose works are being done by Jesus? The Father's works. John 14, 24. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Jesus just confessed that any word or words that anyone hears Jesus speak are not Jesus' words, but the Father's. And finally, John 14 and verse 31, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus keeps God's commands to show the Father and to make known to the world that Jesus loves the Father. Hi, there's the rub. The greatest problem facing Christianity is the place that the Torah has in the life of a Christian. The cardinal reason that Christianity has feared and rejected talking about the law, let alone keeping the law, is that Christianity has equated keeping the commandments with salvation. This is the grossest of tragedies. Law-keeping was never, ever equated with salvation, either in the Old Testament or in the New. Peter once again said it best in Acts chapter 15 and verse 11. But we believe that we will be saved 
through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentile God-fearers, will. Peter knew that no one is saved through works. Paul knew and wrote extensively that no one is saved through works. James, Jesus' half-brother, knew that no one is saved through works. But this is the one thing that we Christians cannot seem to comprehend, and it is not our fault. Salvation is in our DNA. We talk about it constantly. We discuss how this or that in the church is not a salvation issue. Many live in the constant fear that if we get hit by a bus and haven't yet snapped off that last second prayer that God would forgive us of all our sins, that we're on the express train to hell. Living in fear is no way to live. Paul's entire letter to the Galatians is about justification and sonship. The whole thing. What makes you a son of Abraham is not your ability to keep the law perfectly or not. Your identity as a son or daughter of Abraham is fixed, decided, done, adios, sayonara, because of the one and only Jesus Messiah. If you are grafted into him, you are a citizen of Israel, a co-heir with Christ, and a son or daughter of the creator of heaven and earth. Will the real patriot please stand up? What makes one an American, or Indian, or Russian, or Mexican? Is it not granted to you automatically if you are born on the soil of that country? Can anyone not born on American soil, for example, become an American? Of course! There are certain criteria that have to be met, but as soon as one meets those criteria, she becomes a full-fledged American with all the rights and privileges as anyone born there. Now, think about this. What could you possibly do, say, or think that could remove your identity as an American, short of giving up your citizenship voluntarily? Nothing. Even if you committed treason, you'd be the American who committed treason against America. You may not be well thought of by your fellow man, but you'd always be an American. In other words, if you don't give up your identity voluntarily, no one can take it from you. You will always, always be an American, irrespective of where you live, what language you speak, what food you eat, what car you drive, or who you vote for. Is it any different with God? This is Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 8, the letter to the Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, and various other books and letters in the New Testament. Paul's point is that justification is God's work. Justification is a legal term meaning to show a sufficient lawful reason for an act done. All those who are justified became so through trust. We are justified as God's child 
when we place our act of faith in Jesus. This is how we are saved by grace through faith. As I reread that last sentence, I was overcome by a sense of emptiness. Saved by grace through faith. Those words are almost devoid of meaning to so many Christians. If you doubt that, just ask any Christian what grace means. If he or she does not answer in the following way, well, I'll be a kangaroo's cousin. Grace is when you are given something you don't deserve, while mercy is when you are not given something you do deserve. Not so in the Hebrew mind. Grace is more akin to strength and power. Faith is not something that happens merely in the mind or heart, if you will. It is not your deepest belief. Faith is only visible when you do what you believe. You see, faith without works is dead. We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by Jesus' strength and power as we put into action that which Jesus said to put into action. If you love me, keep my commandments. The zombie principle. So why, oh why do we Christians assign the keeping of God's commandments with an attempt at salvation when God never equated the two? And neither did Jesus. A great friend of mine posed a question to some of the members of our Bible study group a while back. He said, in John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. So, was he quoting scripture or making a statement? I was so excited because I knew this one. Jesus, in John 14, 15, as he most often does, is quoting scripture. Do you know where the Lord says, Those who love me keep my commandments? We usually learn the abbreviated version of it, so if it doesn't come to you right away, don't feel too badly. Exodus chapter 20 is one of the greatest and scariest moments in human history, in my opinion. Israel had just heard a marriage proposal from the Almighty in chapter 19. Now she, Israel, would hear the wedding vows in chapter 20 and beyond. God himself would speak the ten words, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, and hidden away at the end of the second commandment are the following words. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing chesed, steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We equate keeping the commandments to an attempt at salvation. God, however, equated keeping the commandments to love. If you love me, keep my commandments. We need to give the sideshow a rest. Stop the acrobatics Cease with the justifications as to why Jesus' commandments are different than God the Father's. If you love God, keep His commandments. Period. God said that, not I. 
if you love any expression of God, whether physical, literal, mathematical, spiritual, legal, artistic, or any other, keep His commandments. It's about loving God, not salvation. If you want to equate salvation to something, equate salvation to what Peter equated it to in 2 Peter 3.15, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. If you love God, Jesus, and their Holy Spirit, keep His commandments. It's His love language. It's how we show Him that we love Him. It's how we enter into His kingdom. It is literally how we declare Him King. When we obey the expressed will of God for life, we are inside the kingdom of God. When we obey any other will than His, we are instantly transported to the kingdom of the evil one. It's that simple. Just a spoonful of humility helps the medicine go down. I've eaten my share of pie in my life. Most of it was humble pie. I've been wrong far more often than I've been right. This book is not about me trying to be right. This book is about finding truth. If I am right about Jesus, the law, Israel, and the gospel, all praise be to God in the highest. If I am wrong, so be it. Error has an excellent track record for educating those that stumble into it. Either way, the truth will be revealed, and we will be one step closer to it. In the next chapter, we are going to do a deep dive into the law. We will look at a few examples of the eternal counsel contained in every one. We'll discover how every commandment, statute, and precept contains two distinct elements, a spirit and a letter. But most of all, we'll get to behold the wondrous revelation that God placed within His commandments that communicate who He is and what is inside His heart.